Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, unwanted pets and relatives, hello, it's your humble social studies teacher, Mr. Palumbo, and welcome to the Professor Liberty Podcast. I hope everyone had a good 4th of July. We had a good time down here with some friends and neighbors, Uh, and I must point out that some of the fireworks being shot off, if that's how you say it, uh, some of the fireworks being released... We're definitely not of the legal variety. But you know what? What says celebrating American independence better than telling the authorities to stick it in their ear? Am I right? So before we get started, I want to remind everybody of the sticker giveaway. I have a whole bunch of, I'm sitting on a whole bunch of Professor Liberty stickers. So if you go to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating and a written review, I will send you a free Professor Liberty sticker. All you got to do is message me or send me an email notifying me of your review. And once I can verify it, you know, we're big Ronald Reagan fans around here. The whole trust but verify motto is alive and well at Professor Liberty. So once I can verify it, that you've indeed posted a written review, a free sticker will be coming your way free of charge. And just a reminder, the email is ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Okay, so today with the talk of independence still fresh in the air, or maybe the talk of how much America sucks by most people on the left, I thought we would talk about the men who fought with Washington during those long eight years known as the Revolutionary War. You know, we know a lot about Washington or at least we should know somewhat about him. We should be familiar with him. But the state of education being what it is today, we'll just leave it at that. I thought it would be interesting, you know, not really look at Washington so much, though we are going to dive into him a little bit here. Here at Professor Liberty, we love George Washington, so we're going to talk about him. But anyway, I also wanted to talk about the men who served under him. The, the, the common soldiers that fought the war for independence. What was that like? What was life like in Washington's army? And how did the men influence Washington himself? So today's episode is called Washington's Army. You know, first thing I want to talk about is we often think of George Washington's army or the Continental Army as a bunch of colonists who knew how to fight, And we might see them as this homogenous group of soldiers, a bunch of white guys that rallied around the cause, and they all shared the same religion, and they all shared the same values, uh, which is not true. That's the often romanticized movie version of things. Uh, Almost all of the men serving under Washington had no military experience. They never drilled. They never marched a day in their life. Also, they were a mixed group ethnically. Did you know that at least by 1777, approximately 10 to 15 percent of Washington's troops were black? Some Native American groups also assisted Washington as guides and scouts and as common soldiers. So, like I always say, you know, America has been diverse from the very beginning. Don't listen to these Marxists and these critical race theory folks out there and what, Project 1619 and all these people out here trying to paint America as white versus everyone else. 
Yes, there has been a majority of white Europeans in the United States, but it has always been a mixed group. And the fact that you're grouping all the Europeans as one group is also ignorant. French people, Dutch people, English people, German people have their own culture, values, distinctive natures. So you can't just lump all people into this whiteness so you can label them as the enemy. And I'll probably mention this again, but Washington's army, the very first official American army, was integrated. That means blacks and whites fought together side by side. This will not happen again until 1950s with the Korean War. So the very first army that the Americans put on the field is going to be an integrated army. Uh uh, excuse me, Mr. Plummel. Uh, uh, Mr. Plummel, can I uh, say something here? Uh, Mr. Plummel, uh, yeah, yeah, but but they oppressed the blacks, Mr. Plumbo. As soon as the war was over, they didn't give freedom to the blacks, and white people are mean to the blacks, Mr. Plumbo. Well, we are going to talk about that a little later. Yes, there is oppression. Yes, there is racism. What I'm going to continue to point out on this podcast is the founding principles of America are still there, and they are not racist. They are not colorblind. All men are created equal. And they even put that on the battlefield. And it's going to change Washington and some of the founders themselves. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Okay, let me let me let me pull the reins back here real quick. A little too much coffee this morning. All right, according to the numbers, the total number of men who served in the Continental Army was about two hundred and thirty thousand. But that was through the entire eight years. And the army was never really stronger than about 50,000 at any one time. And it was never concentrated that much in one place. For example, the Battle of Yorktown, which is going to be the, the deciding battle to end the war, there was only about eight to 9,000 Continental troops. Now, there were some French troops there that brought the total force up to 15,000. The British remained somewhat steady with approximately 22,000 men with at least 25,000 loyalists and 30,000 Hessians to draw from as well. So throughout, throughout the war, the British forces remained relatively strong. I also want to talk about Washington himself in regards to uh, military experience. Uh, we know that the men themselves were green. They had no soldiering experience. They were, you know, they might have been veterans of skirmishes here and there, but they weren't professional soldiers. Well, Washington himself, though he had some military experience, he had no official military command experience. Well, none officially anyway. He was an officer in the militia before the war. And his actions in the Ohio Valley, you might look at Fort Necessity if you want to look into this. His actions in the Ohio Valley actually sparked what would be called the French-Indian War. He was, he was intimately involved in that situation. Isn't that crazy, folks? So the, the guy that started the French-Indian War is going to be the guy that's going to win the Revolutionary War. George Washington is so essential to the American story. I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. Anyway, uh, it was an army of volunteers with no knowledge of soldiering, led by a guy with very little commanding experience. This was the state of the colonial forces at the beginning of the war. And they're going up against the most professional, the most efficient, 
the most deadliest army in the world, the army of Great Britain. I mean, if it, it, it doesn't get any better than a David and Goliath story, folks. This is about as close as you're going to get historically to something like that. Now, going back to the diversity within the ranks, historians note that Washington wasn't a big fan of allowing the free blacks and the slaves, there were some slaves in there, they, he wasn't a big fan of letting them join the ranks at first, and he tried to bar them all together. But so many blacks were enlisting, and apparently the army could use the help, we talked about the numbers earlier, that Washington reversed his decision. Battlefields.org writes it this way, The integrated army in the revolution was the last integrated American army until the Korean War nearly 175 years later in 1950. Standing shoulder to shoulder, the ethnically diverse soldiery formed. From free and enslaved blacks to Native Americans to Native-born colonists to foreign recruits, Washington's integrated army was a diverse and unique fighting force for a long and grueling eight-year war, unquote. That's powerful, folks. I make the point every time that America is a diverse story. It is not this black and white story, pun intended. It is a story of the world, people, liberty-loving people of the world coming together. That is the story of America. Many see Washington's evolution on slavery happening during this time. Mount Vernon writes it this way, as a young Virginia planter, Washington accepted slavery without apparent concern. But after the Revolutionary War, he began to feel burdened by his personal entanglement with slavery and uneasy about slavery's effect on the nation. Throughout the 1780s and 1790s, Washington stated privately that he no longer wanted to be a slave owner, that he did not want to buy and sell slaves or separate enslaved families, and that he supported a plan for gradual abolition in the United States, unquote. Now, anyone who has studied Washington knows that getting his personal beliefs nailed down is difficult. He was a very private man. But I think there's at least three factors that has influenced Washington's, um, you know, uh, movement towards abolition. So let's talk about these three factors. First, Washington, like Jefferson and others, knew that it looked how it looked, right? The irony of, of talking about freedom and liberty, and yet you own slaves. This business of all men are created equal, and you're a slave owner. I mean, that's pretty much, that doesn't look good. That's not a good look, folks. That's pretty hypocritical. That's pretty ironic. And I think the founders knew that. And it kind of makes, uh, you know, it kind of makes you look a little disingenuous, you can't talk about all men are created equal. You can't talk about a, a, a nation built on liberty and en, enslave people, right? It just doesn't go together. I often look at the Declaration of Independence as a political document, but I, I, I really see it as a spiritual one. Jefferson wrote and Washington fought for higher ideals that they themselves were not fully living up to. But that's like us today. How many values, how many ideals do you hold that you wish you could do and then you fail to meet those goals? You fail to meet the person you want to be. That is what Washington and Jefferson are also doing and others. 
So the Declaration of Independence, they almost don't realize the magnitude of the words that they're putting to paper and the arms that they're fighting to defend it. And eventually, I would say that that is the American story from this point on, is that struggle to meet those uh, to meet those ideals. And Washington was a man of honor. He was a man. He was a humble man. He was a man of honesty. And if you're if you're a guy or a gal today that is striving for truth, you're trying to be the best person you can be. You got to know that Washington looks at this and he's like, look, I'm supposed to be this stand up guy. I'm supposed to be this this guy of honor and I'm fighting for freedom and I got all these slaves and I'm sure that bothered him deeply. The second factor, I think, was the war itself. Witnessing blacks fight with just as much bravery as whites. This had to go against the, 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 the thought of the time. Remember, blacks were seen as genetically inferior. They're, they're kind of lower humans. They're not, they're not the same, right? And this fact of watching a battle and watching whites and blacks help each other, save each other, fight for each other, Right. Stand side by side under the most intense pressure. Right. That had to affect Washington. It had to it had to challenge his beliefs. Now, many blacks were fighting for their freedom. Okay, some might not have been fighting per se for the country. They were fighting for their freedom. And unfortunately, some even after the war were not given freedom by both sides. Okay, Uh, blacks were used by both sides. For their own personal gain, uh, the British promised freedom, and then maybe many after the war they were re-enslaved and sent to the West Indies, and the same thing happened with many blacks fighting in the South. They were re-enslaved, though some took their money, took their Revolutionary War, you know, army fund, army pension, and bought their freedom with it. But again, I, I can't help but see Washington watching a battle, and and watching blacks and whites fighting together, being brave together, helping each other. And that's really going to affect your your worldview, right? And remember, slavery was propped up by pseudoscience, right? We still have pseudoscience today, boys and girls. Pseudoscience of the time that claimed, you know, blacks were genetically inferior and they had proof. You want, you want to talk about real racism, Right. I'm sure Washington's worldview was challenged again and again as he saw black men uh, standing their ground, you know, being brave, showing courage, and ultimately dying side by side. How could you see valor and courage and strength over and over again and not begin to question slavery, especially slavery based on race? There's something about military service that forces you to see everyone as equal. You're all part of the team. I've got friends of all colors and creeds who I served with in the Navy that I still talk to to this day that I never would have met. We, have, we come from completely different backgrounds, completely different cultures. And yet there's a bond that forms with people who serve together. And maybe George wouldn't say it out loud, But I'm sure many of those black soldiers won his respect and really challenged his previous worldview on slavery. Finally, I want to talk about his friendship with Marquis de Lafayette. 
Marquis de Lafayette was a French officer. He was he came from a wealthy background, and he really uh, came over to help George Washington as an advisor. Uh, he was younger than George, but they had a really good, close relationship. And Lafayette was radically anti-slavery. And I think this and his relationship with his personal servant, William Lee, influenced Washington against the practice of slavery. Lafayette spent his lifetime as an abolitionist, proposing that slaves be emancipated slowly and recognizing the crucial role that slavery played in many economies. MountVernon.com makes the point that Lafayette hoped that his ideas would be adopted by Washington in order to free slaves in the United States and stop the spread from there. And his efforts were not in vain, as Washington would eventually begin implementing those practices on his own plantation uh, in Mount Vernon, though he didn't free his slaves until he died. Washington's relationship with William Billy Lee was another example of someone being close to him and helped him see that all people were people and deserved, uh, no one deserved to be enslaved. William was George's personal assistant kind of an aide-de-camp, if you will, and he was with George every step of the way throughout the war. If the general was present, so was Billy Lee. There's a really neat story about their relationship. Uh, When the war was over, William went back to the plantation at Mount Vernon, and when Washington became president, uh, Billy Lee wanted to join the new president in New York City, which was the capital at the time, and wanted to help be his assistant there. And uh, Washington gave his permission, but William was hurt. He Something happened at the plantation. He hurt his legs. He hurt his knees. And so he couldn't walk as well as he, um, as well as he used to, right? So he's kind of he's limp, lame, whatever you want to call it. But Washington gives his permission for William anyway. Now, here's what's interesting. Washington knew that Billy was probably not going to be able to do anything, right? He, he, he wasn't going to be useful, but he gave permission anyway. And I wonder if it's out of a sense of loyalty and friendship. You know, eventually William would have to go back and uh, he couldn't help the president. But this idea of knowing that your friend is hurt, but he really wants to be with you. And so you let him try anyway. And, it, it if, and if William was just a slave... Why would Washington care? Why, why does this guy, why is he bothering me? Go do something on the plantation, leave me alone. And as it turned out, Billy was not able to fulfill his duties, so the president sent him back home. Upon Washington's death, William Lee was freed, and he received a lifelong pension of $30 a year, and he remained the rest of his life at Mount Vernon. Okay, back to the Army. The Army under Washington was established during the Second Continental Congress after the conflicts at Lexington and Concord. Most men who served in the Continental Army were about 15 to 30 years old. Those ages uh, are a little bit different in the militia, which was about 16 to 45 years old. Terms of enlistment were a constant issue for Washington, who always seemed to suffer from insufficient rations, men, and arms. Battlefield.com writes, prior to 1777, enlistment in the Continental Army was of various durations, but was generally a year of service. 
After 1778, Congress changed the rules and men served for either three years or the duration of the war. In most cases, bounties were paid to entice men to enlist for men to choose or for men to choose longer services. Bounties would consist of more money, additional clothing, or lands west of the Ohio River where many of the veterans would settle after the war. Unquote. Camp life in Washington's army was standard for any 18th century army. If they could, they would camp near running water because static water is a no-no for drinking. Uh, I learned this uh, when researching for this podcast. Soldiers were rationed a few ounces of spirits, which is alcohol, to put into their canteen as a means to kill any fungus or harmful bacteria that might be floating around in the water. That was interesting. Sanitation was very important, and though the concepts of hygiene weren't fully understood as they are today, Battlefields.org mentions that for every soldier who died in battle, nine would die of diseases mostly attributed to poor sanitation. Men cooked one meal per day, and whatever was left over was divided up and snacked on until the next day. No wonder there was no obese people back then. On average, a soldier in the Continental Army carried about 45 pounds of gear, but since supply lines were poor, the full 45 pounds rarely happened. Gear included his weapon, his knapsack, his bayonet, a tin cup, a canteen, a bowl, a blanket, a cartridge box, and writing pen and paper if they were able to read and write. For comparison, the weight for a Marine or a soldier serving in Afghanistan today is about 60 to 100 pounds. During drilling, soldiers were pushed to successively fire four rounds per minute. I always thought it was three, but battlefields.org said it was four. Soldiers would drill with their muskets for eight hours a day. Well, there you have it, folks. A little brief look into Washington's army, the men who fought for independence. And just like our military today, these men come from all colors and creeds. Some fought for freedom for the nation. Others fought for their own personal freedom. They all suffered the elements without proper supplies. Many froze to death in the winter months. It's interesting to think about what would drive someone to sacrifice themselves in such a way. One more thing scholars agree on is that men had an unbreakable bond with Washington. They loved him, and many times throughout the war, he was able to hold the army together by his sheer will and charisma. But we know that the men influenced Washington as well. Like everyone who has gone to battle, by the end of the war, Washington was a different man. And I have to believe those men around him are what caused him to rethink some of his formerly held beliefs and ideas. The words of the Declaration say, We find these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And I tend to think that Washington, through his eight years of struggle and battle, and watching men die gruesome deaths and try to save each other and try to defend each other, I think those self-evident truths became more and more apparent. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please give me a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to email the show, send me your government, history, or economics questions 
to ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. You can also go to TeachersPayTeachers.com and look at any lessons or activities that I've designed. If you'd like to for homeschool or if you're a teacher and you're looking for more in-depth social studies material, please go to TeachersPayTeachers.com and look up Professor Liberty. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty. Liberty.